Well, today we begin a new sermon series for the summer. We are looking at Peter's first letter, and the series is titled, Hope in a Hostile World. The original recipients were new Christians from regions that were far away from Jerusalem, places like Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. How do you think they became Christians? Well, certainly some were there in Jerusalem that first Pentecost Sunday, and they heard Peter preach the very first Christian sermon ever, and they believed, and then they went back to their foreign lands, and they spread this gospel to other places. But also, it is likely that Peter himself journeyed to these foreign lands to help plant churches. Now, these churches were living in increasingly hostile times. The Emperor Nero had risen to power, but his brutal persecution of Christians had not yet reached its climax. And it's true, right? Christians from every generation since have been persecuted, just like Jesus said we would. Add to this that life on earth It's just outright hard, whether you're a believer or not. And so this morning and throughout this book, Peter helps us to focus upon the hope that God gives his people so that we may honor him in how we live in this hostile world. Today's sermon is titled, Our Living Hope. Page 1014, 1 Peter, chapter 1. Verses 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, 
in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. We thank you that, that we share with these original recipients this world and this world's Savior. So we know that this word is not just an ancient word for ancient people, but it's a, it's a word for peop your people of all time. We all live in a hostile world. And we need a Savior and a living hope from there. Help us to understand this more clearly. Amen. So does anybody here like to go to candy stores, like those like old school candy stores with the glass and all the candy behind it? What's your go-to? Is it the super fresh fudge? Perhaps it's the peanut brittle. Just don't tell your dentist. Or perhaps like me, it's anything dark chocolate with caramel and sea salt. It's kind of a new thing, right? The sea salt thing. Everybody has their own preferences. Now, what if you were to replace the candy and instead behind this glass was all the various things we humans hope for in this world, things that we secure our life to? things that we believe will bring us meaning and purpose and, and satisfaction, whatever it is that you think would make your Instagram feed enviable. What the Bible helps us to understand is what I think we all sense deep down, is that placing our hope in things of this world in the end, in the end, will fail us. The letter First Peter that we'll be studying this summer helps us to align our hope upon that which truly satisfies. And how can we know that what we're looking into is something that truly satisfies over everything else? Well, our passage describes that this is something God gives, and it's called a living hope. And Peter says at the very end, this living hope is, is something that, that the angels in heaven look down upon with great joy and delight. Angels in heaven, when they go to the candy counter of options in this world, they cannot take their eyes off the living hope that God has given us and how it works in our lives. Angels in heaven right now are looking down on this congregation, delighting in God's people, savoring the word of God. Right? So, Trouble is, society, culture, they present us with many, many options of, to live for, many hopes. What the world tells us to place our hope upon, in the end, it fails for two reasons. One, all of society's hopes, this world's hope, do they not end at your death? And two, they're man-made. They're human-derived. The living hope that Peter, Peter speaks of, one, does not end at your death, but goes on for all eternity and only gets better. And two, the living hope that Peter talks about comes from God himself, your creator, the one who knows you, which means that God gives a living hope that transcends everything that life throws at us, even our death. Now think about why having this living hope from God is so important. 
It's not this life full of brutal hardships. I'm not saying it doesn't have its wonderful, delightful joys, you know. Just think about going to the beach and sitting there and Memorial Day weekend. But in the end, life is brutal. It's hard. Our bodies fail us. Our relationships fail us. Our court system fails us. And on top of it, if we're honest, we fail too. We're not the people we know we should be. This bitterness that's not just ours, it's in this world. It's a, it's a hostile world in which we live. So thankfully, the Lord gives us an alive hope. We have a living hope that transcends everything that life throws at us. Therefore, we must secure our lives to this living hope. That's the big idea this morning. We're going to look at that under two headings. First, the gift, and then the grief. Gift and grief. You guys like your bad news first or good news first? Uh, we're going good news first. Is that all right with you guys? Sorry. If you want, you just go for like 10 minutes and come back. And just get the grief. All right. I think we want more than that. Um, the big idea here is this. Because of God's mercy, he has gifted us with a living hope. This is God's idea. This is his plan, right? This is, you know, this is from ages past, something God has done for us. That should delight us. And what we see is God's gift of grace towards us is described by Peter as his great mercy. Look at verse 3. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us. We're the recipients. We had nothing to do with it. Caused us to be born again. A Christian is someone who has received God's mercy. Christian, you must never lose sight of how needy you were and also how needy you currently are for the mercy of God. It is by God's mercy that we have this hope to secure our lives to. And because of God's mercy towards you, you have received a new birth. You're not the same person. You've been made alive in Christ Jesus. You've died with him in his death and have risen with him in newness of life. So Peter says that God has caused us to experience a new birth. This old you has died on the cross. Behold, the new you in Christ Jesus. And you know, without this new birth, you cannot experience this living hope that Peter described. He describes a chain reaction of three things that God's mercy brings. And the first one really is, is uh, the latter two are all really about part of the first one. But here we go. First, our new birth in verse 3 is to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is the adjective that Peter uses to describe this hope that God gives? Living. This new birth brings you an alive hope. The old hopes that you used to secure your life to and the old hopes that you tend to go back to on this Christian journey should be seen as what? Dead hopes. They're not alive. In verse 2, Peter points us back to the cross when Jesus cleansed us from sin by sprinkling with his blood. And Peter highlights the resurrection from the dead, though, in, in verse 3. Listen, Christian, Jesus' goal for you wasn't just to go to the cross to take your sins upon him. His goal was to be raised from the dead so that he now gives us this new life. We had to have our sins forgiven on the cross, through the bloody cross, in order that we can have this new life. 
This is the goal, this new life in Christ that God has for his people. God wants you to live with this living hope. Now, if you secure your life to the hope of career or beauty or a healthy physique, in the end, you'll come to realize that these hopes are dead hopes. Dead hopes can never deliver upon what they promise you. Only the hope that God gives can satisfy. Do you believe that? Now, why is this? Because the hope that God gives us to secure our lives to isn't dead, it's living. And how does this enter into our lives? Look at what Peter says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is rising from the dead as our living hope brings this living hope to us. Now, Peter writes that this new birth to a living hope also brings an inheritance. Yay, there we go. Whew, that sounds exciting. Hmm. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Hmm. You know, at some point, every one of us gets to an age where we're aware of how much inheritance our parents have for us, right? You know, because they're still alive, so you're not really allowed to think much about it. But some realize they have no inheritance. And this can steal one's joy. It can make a person envious, perhaps, of somebody else more fortunate. Others have a large inheritance coming, but they worry, perhaps, that the market's going to crash right before it becomes theirs. Add to this, I've witnessed too many times to recall how siblings feud over the inheritance. Well, I'm seeing a lot of nodding heads, okay? You know, there's feuds and fights over their parents' inheritance to them. Whole families have been ripped apart. Tell me no earthly parent would ever want that for their children. So earthly inheritances often make life worse, not better. But not so God's inheritance towards us, right? Peter describes it how? Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, right? It's not at the uh, Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> Um, imperishable. It means it's not like things that can rot or decay, undefiled. It, it indicates that it's morally pure. It's a good thing. It's not tainted by sin. Unfading. Unlike a bouquet of flowers. How's the Mother's Day flowers looking right now, huh? They, yeah. Um, they lose their glory. Unlike that new car you get, loses its appeal. The inheritance that God gives us shall never lose its luster. Now, I should probably clarify this. This inheritance is the eternal life that Jesus' resurrection guarantees is ours. It's spoken of in Revelations chapter 21 and 22 when, when God recreates this whole world, takes away all that is sorrowful, makes it perfect to where there can be no more chance of sin ever again, and then God comes down and dwells, and we 
we'll, we'll have, if you're in Christ, we'll have a, a new, resurrected, glorious body that will live on forever and ever. There will be no more sin. And we will never grow old of what's to come. Think about it. You're, after a thousand years in this glory of, glorious heaven on earth, you're not going to find yourself saying, well, the first, first thousand years were really cool, but I'm a little worried about the next. Heaven will not be stale. Heaven will not be hostile. Peter adds that this wonderful inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's not in our hands. We cannot lose it. And check this out. That not only is God keeping it in heaven, he's keeping us on earth so that we can get it one day. Verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. This hope cannot slip through your fingers. Why? God is keeping it in a safe place, and he's keeping you safe by his power. We just need to understand that, that this is something that we'll have to wait for. See, Peter says three things. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance, for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It's ready. It's coming someday. could be really soon. Either way, it is this gift of the living hope that we are to secure our lives. And so for us right now, I think we need to evaluate what are the hopes, earthly hopes, that we tend to cling to. We need to see that all of these hopes on earth that do not come from heaven are in fact fleeting hopes. Not that we don't try to succeed in, in our work and in our marriages and other relationships. It's not like we don't save money for a rainy day. But ultimately, we must secure ourselves to the living hope that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead gives. Do you personally see how important this is right now? Do you see how important it is to secure your life to the only hope, the only hope that transcends all others? So that's the gift. Now for the, now for the grief. And I'm not making it up. Actually, the, the word is in our text. So, um, you know, the big idea here is this: that because we adhere our lives to this living hope, it does not mean we are exempt from grief. Right? In fact. The, often the more you live for this hope, as Jesus said, you will be persecuted. So here we go. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In verse 6, six through 9, Peter shows us the three P's of trials. First, the presence of trials. See, not only do Christians share in the same sort of trials as unbelievers, you know, um, illness, loss of employment, strained relationships, but we also suffer for righteousness' sake, as Jesus said we would. This is as we seek to honor God as salt and light in our communities. We can experience persecution and trials. That is what was happening to these five churches that are scattered throughout Asia Minor. Some, as we'll see later, um, were servants who were enduring uh, as those who were being poorly treated by their masters 
Others were harmed for their zeal to do good. Others suffered for righteousness' sake. You know, for Christians today, we seek to honor God by promoting the goodness of marriage between a man and a woman, and we seek to promote life inside the womb and outside. And so there will be many who will actually think we are the evil one. And when we share the gospel, will not, do not people think that we're narrow-minded and judgmental? Persecution comes with the territory of sharing the gospel, of living it out. So the presence of trials in our lives is real. Now for the purpose of trials. We see two purposes for trials in verse 7. They're to test us and transform us. Here we go. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials have a way to test our faith, to see if it really is genuine. Do, we, do I really believe? Trials will help you with that. You know, you can study calculus day and night. I never did. But you could study calculus day and night, but you would not really know if you understand calculus until what? Until you take a test. If you get a B, you know that you have some understanding of calculus, but you could do better. Trials, though grievous, they test us to see whether we're securing our life to Christ or not, whether we trust God with this current situation, whether we will continue to live by faith and not by sight, or if we will turn and run. I don't know about you, but I need God to test me regularly. Not that I enjoy the trials in my life that God has brought me through, but I've come to enjoy what the tests reveal. Yes, my greater need of a Savior and also his great work and his power to overcome my messed up, broken life. I don't know about you, but we need God's trials and tests. And if the trials of life help us in this sort of way, how can we, how can we say they're not good for us? So one purpose of trials is they test us. The other is that they actually transform us. Look again in verse 7. Peter says, The tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Peter's using the image of gold being refined to make it more and more pure. You, you would take it and you would put it in a crucible or some fiery furnace, and, and some of the impurities would just vaporize off, and the others would rise to the top to be uh, scraped away and you'd be left with more pure gold. God allows these trials in our life because his desire is to refine us, to purify us, to make us more like Christ. We just don't like it when it's happening. So Grace Church, we must be a church that welcomes God's testing and his transforming power. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, only in the darkness can you see the stars. And so let us not be so quick to run when the darkness comes. God has a purpose. He wants us to look up to him and see the stars of his grace upon our lives. You know, mature Christians, they think this way. They don't run and hide when suffering comes. They don't assume that God must have abandoned them. They don't look for the nearest exit. 
Mature Christians understand that God has a purpose for suffering. It makes us trust him more, love him more, and long more for our inheritance to come. All right, so with regards to grief, you looked at the presence of trials and the purpose of trials. Now, let's look at the product. The product of trials is the fruit of praise and glory and honor. Verse 7, passing the test means our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying that one day in the future, when Christ returns, we're going to stand in his presence, and we're going to see him face to face. And yes, we will praise him and give him glory and honor. But Peter intimates that this is a two-way street here. When you stand that day before Christ, your walking in faithfulness, your perseverance will be found to result in praise and glory and honor from Jesus himself to you. Isn't it true that every parent knows the delight of seeing their son or daughter grow and succeed, to, to persevere, to, 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 to press on in hard times? We well up with praise, do we not? We glory and honor in our kids when they succeed. Now listen, how much more so your Savior, the living hope, take pleasure and delight and glory and honor in your life. If you feel like he could never do that, you just don't understand the gospel and you don't understand your Savior. Jesus will one day look at you in the eye and rejoice over you. Another product of trials is a greater faith and love for Christ. You know, as I was thinking this through this week, I was thinking in this passage in verse 8, it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe. I was convicted by that. I'm like, I don't see Jesus now, but I appreciate him. I don't see Jesus now, but it's good to have him around. Things get tough. But you notice the proper response to this living hope is love for the one who gives it. It's relational. We have a living hope who knows us, loves us, and cares for us. And the proper response is love in return. After Jesus' resurrection, all the disciples were gathered and saw Jesus face to face, all except who? Thomas. Thomas doubted the report that the resurrection was real. But later that week, he sees and believes. And then and Jesus told him, he said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Peter is commending these churches for their love of their Savior. They've never seen whom they deeply love. And so because of their love for Jesus, they are willing to suffer for Jesus' sake. Think it through. If we just appreciate Jesus, we're going to run when suffering comes. But when we love him, we'll know that we'll find him in the midst of our suffering. And that changes everything. So they're willing to suffer for Jesus' sake. 
And when they do, they experience more and more of Jesus' presence in their lives. They have that peace that passes all understanding that only Christ can give his people. Trials have a way of increasing our faith and increasing our love for Jesus. So after producing, after the product of trials is rejoicing. Look at the end of verse 8. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I try to think through winter times in our lives when we have this kind of joy, we're just like, wow, you know, right? Kind of, is that not what it's saying? This isn't just like, yeah, that was a good meal. I liked it. Where's dessert? No, this is like over the top joy, inexpressible. You know, I think we've all heard of sports teams that had a really rough season of adversity. At the end of all their struggles, it comes with a winning championship. And with that comes all this great rejoicing. I'm going to go there. Kind of like the Celtics game last night. They're down three games to zero in a best of seven. And then they claw their way back. And last night, they tied it up. Tip in point, less than .2 seconds on the board goes in. You should have seen how they were rejoicing. Inexpressible joy. All right, that was better. That was better that time. But think about it. I mean, that's, that's what this living hope is meant to produce in us, that type of joyful celebration. And notice this. Peter doesn't say that this joy only comes after, after the persevering, after the trial, after the struggle. No, Peter was encouraging these people to rejoice with inexpressible joy now, in the middle of their grief, in the midst of this hostile world. There is something about securing your hope to the resurrected Christ that is able to produce joy in you in the very darkest days of your suffering. Christian, you've experienced that, right? You can testify to that to say, yeah, that's true. I think some of us need to stop waiting for the trials to end and find reason to rejoice in our living hope. The last product of faith in trials is perseverance. Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you're a Christian here, there's something yet still for you. The outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, perhaps you're saying, well, I thought my, I was saved. Well, in the Bible, salvation is three things, past, present, and future. On the on the one hand, God himself keeps you saved by his guarding power. On the other hand, we just got to persevere in our, own, in our own strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. But Peter's saying that in the age to come, the outcome of your faith will finally be here. It'll finally be yours. Salvation is past when you became saved, present, and future. One of the things that delights me about this is that, you know, this work past and in the present and in the future, this work of salvation, is it not all a work of God for his people, right? God caused us to be born again. This new life isn't something that we say, hey, I'm going to have a new life tomorrow. I'm thinking about, thinking about becoming one of those crazy Christians. No, it just kind of comes upon you, right? Um, and he guards us in the present, but also we, he has secured for us 
this eternal life in the glorious age to come. Full salvation is coming. Peter is saying that we must persevere in faith until it comes. It's our living hope that allows us to persevere. Well, this morning we've seen that God has given us an alive hope. We have a living hope that transcends everything that life throws at us. Therefore, we must secure our life to this living hope. And know this, God gives us this living hope. Why? Because he knows we need it, right? We need a certain hope to cling to in this hostile world. For even when we're living rightly, doing our devotionals, showing up to church, all the things that good Christians do, persecution comes our way. So I'm reminded of the story of Job. We're going to end on this. Remember in the book of Job when Satan entered into God's presence and God didn't say, get the heck out of here. He said, no, I want to hear from you. And so, uh, and Job said, or, or Satan said, you know, this guy Job, he only worships you because things are going well in his life. And so God said, all right, go ahead. Behold my servant Job. Let's just see what my grace does for him. Do what you want with him and you will see my glory in his life. Now, in the book of Job, it doesn't mention it, but come on, it's not a far stretch to think that along with the God in heaven and Satan's presence, are there not angels upon angels up there as well? And in my mind, I'm picturing them as well, craning their necks, looking down upon this earth, looking at Job, looking at how Job is experiencing hardship after hardship and yet securing his life to this very same living hope that you and I get to attach our lives to. The angels are looking down, and then they see Job in the midst of his grief say these words, and they go, ah. Oh. Job says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand on this earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed in the tomb, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Just as angels craned their neck and leaned in to look down to see how the gospel caused Job to live with a living hope. So too angels today, they long to look down upon this world to behold God's power and his grace, how it transforms us. What do the angels see? Yeah, they see us when we fall short, when we give in to temptation, when the flesh battles mightily against the spirit, but they also delight to see how God's grace comes upon God's people afresh and how God is working in the lives of his people. Every time we say no to sin and yes to righteousness, every time we make peace when there is conflict, every time we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, every time we point others to Christ, every time we suffer and yet Jesus loves more and more, the angels in heaven are overcome with joy and praise. 
And of course, so is our Lord well. Christian, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Therefore, let us forsake all other false hopes and secure our lives to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I, I think we all can confess that the hopes of this world are so ever-present. They're so popular. They press in on us so much that we can lose sight of our great hope. We're thankful for Peter for writing this letter to those ancient churches and to this modern church today that we may be reminded that we have been given a new birth, that we have a living hope and an inheritance kept in heaven for us. We delight in this truth. May it bear fruit in our lives, we pray. Amen.